Sports Business Radio launched in 2004. Brian Berger has interviewed the biggest names in sports and business. Let's step into the Sports Business Radio vault and look back on some of our favorite conversations. This week, we look back on conversations with golf legend Jack Nicklaus and late NBA commissioner David Stern. Now, enter the Sports Business Radio vault. One-on-one with those making the big-time decisions that impact your sport. This is Sports Sense on Sports Business Radio. Sports Business Radio. My guest is Jack Nicholas. He's the winner of a record 18 major championships. He's the CEO of the Nicholas Company and a goodwill ambassador for the game of golf. Mr. Nicholas, it's an honor to have you on Sports Business Radio. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Brian. So I got to tell you, in doing my research for this interview, I was struck by what an amazingly busy schedule you keep. You just finished hosting the Memorial. You're the head of the Nicholas Companies. You travel to dozens of countries every year designing courses for Nicholas Design, and you somehow find time to spend quality time with your wife, your children, your 21 grandchildren. You seem to be working more now than you were when you were playing regularly. Where do you get all this energy? If I don't, if I don't keep the energy up, you know, they they put you away, <laughs> and uh, you know, sort of, or they farm you out or something, Brian. I, I don't know. I've always had energy. I've always been sort of uh, one of those kids when I was growing up that I got up in the morning and I came in at night and my mom grabbed my ears, you know. Right. And uh, but I, that's I've always had to be doing something, and I, you know, people always say, well, gosh, you know, you, how do you do all this stuff? And I said, well. You know, you got to remember, I was playing 25 weeks a year. I was traveling tournament golf and spending a week at a place. I don't do that anymore. I've got 25 free weeks now. Right. And uh, so I'm going to fill them. I, I enjoyed filling them up and working and doing things. And it's, uh, you know, most people work all their life to retire to play golf. I play golf all my life to retire to work. Right. And so, and so I kind of enjoy that. And I've got the grandkids are growing up. My, my oldest just graduated from high school last last week. And so... Uh, we're not. Uh, I'm, I'm watching them in high school athletics, and I'll watch some of them in college and in the future. And so, we're, uh, we're we're pretty active. It's an exciting time for you, I'm sure. You're an incredible goodwill ambassador for the game of golf. You remain close to the United States Golf Association. As an endorsee of the Royal Bank of Scotland, you've entered into a deal that puts the USGA and the RBS together in a business relationship. The four-year agreement with the USGA features a number of components that will be integrated across all USGA championships, including the U.S. Open and the U.S. Women's Open. So now RBS has ties to three of golf's four majors as the official patron sponsor of the British Open Championship and the PGA Championship. Can you explain this new partnership between the RBS and the UGA and what your role is going to be uh, going forward? Well, you know, the RBS has been involved with the British Open for over 100 years. Right. And they, they, part of what they they're, uh, have done, they've been a, you know, they were called, well, they were, still are, the Royal Bank of Scotland. They felt like Royal Bank of Scotland was a little bit restrictive uh, since they, they became the, uh, I, think, I think, the third largest bank in Europe. And now they're the fourth largest bank in the world or the sixth largest bank in the United States. And my role was to help them trans, the transition from the World Bank of Scotland to RBS. And they used me as that vehicle. And so uh, through the advertising and promotion of, of my involvement with them, uh, you know, I think a lot of people realize that, that RBS is a pretty significant uh, player in the United States today. Absolutely, and so and part of that has been all through the game of golf. So the natural relationship of being involved with the British Open 
they wanted to expand that to be involved with golf's best, so they want to be involved with the USGA and the PGA and, and, and their championships also, and they are. And, you know, I'm sort of that vehicle to uh, bring them together from the game of golf. And uh, it's been a very nice relationship. It's been great for me, and, I, and I'm sure it's been great for RBS, or they wouldn't continue to have me. Yeah, I'm sure. I love the commercials that they've done with you, too. I think those are great. You know, I look at what you've done and just what you've meant to the game of golf, not only when you played, but now you have Nicholas Design. It's an incredibly successful golf course design company. You've designed courses in 45 countries around the world. There's 300 Nicholas courses. Uh, you're designing 100 more. And between what you're doing with the USGA to promote the game of golf and these courses you're designing, what a legacy you're leaving for future golfers. Well, you know, it's a game that gave me so much, and it's a game that uh, I want to continue to be part of and continue to grow with it. Uh, one of the neat things about the things I'm doing is that, uh, you know, we're actually working in 29 new countries now, as well as all the other countries we've been working in. Wow. And, you know, we go into these countries, and, and a lot of them were the first golf course in that country. That's got to be fun. And to have the op- the, op- the opportunity to form the the and uh, and, can, and sort of uh, formulate the, sh- the shape of what that game is going to be in that country and its future is, is kind of it's kind of fun to go into, into mostly Eastern Bloc now with those countries, going into Russia, Poland, you know, uh, Bulgaria, Ukraine, all, all the way down through uh, Romania and Czech Republic and so forth and so on. Uh, all those are all new places. And, you know, to... They all will grow up now on a pretty decent golf course, and and the young people that come from there will uh, be able to compete around the world and uh, make the game more of a global game, continue to grow it. And uh, uh, that's kind of fun to be part of that. I've got to ask you a question as a designer. You're the greatest golfer who ever lived, so when you're designing a course, how do you put yourself in someone like my shoes? I'm a duffer, and when you're designing these holes, how do you think in terms of someone like me instead of, Jack Nicholas, greatest golfer who ever played. Well, I think that you, uh, you know, I've done, uh, we've done over 300 golf courses, so I think when you start to look at it, you pretty well figure out that who's going to play it. And, you know, only 1.8% of your play is played from the back tees. Hmm. So you're really designing the golf course for 98.2% of the people. And so you really better be designing from the members' tees because that's where your bread and butter comes from. And so you've got to figure out how do they, how do the average golfer hit it? How do, how do the women hit it? How do juniors, how do beginners? You've got to try to figure out how that's going to work. And you just keep, keep working with it and try to play them around. I mean, some of the first golf courses I did were very difficult golf courses because they were done for tournament golf. Right. And, uh, you know, like Muirfield is, is a difficult golf course. Shoal Creek, Castle Pines, they're, they're all done for tournament golf. Well, then, then all of a sudden I, I figured out, I said, you know, I'm really not designing this golf course for one week a year. I should be designing this golf course for 51 weeks a year. Right. And adapting it to a tournament. I think if I look back at Augusta, I think Augusta was that. Augusta is a wonderful golf course. It's a wonderful members golf course. All they did was move the tees back and hide the pins, and they played the Masters. So that philosophy I've always thought has been pretty darn good. And, you know, it worked for the Masters and it was successful. Why not try to, try to take it forward? So I try to look at that kind of a, kind of a thing and when I'm designing. And I think it's... Uh, I think it's been successful. We we sometimes don't don't get it right every time, but a lot of times we do. And uh, I think we've got a lot of people that uh, have enjoyed our golf courses and enjoy uh, uh, playing them and and uh, and living there. So it's uh, uh, and it's, and it's been fun to be able to be part of it. I would imagine that people find you if someone wants to hire Jack Nicholas to design their course. 
How does that process take place? I mean, I see your website and obviously you've got a pristine reputation, but you know, these people in third block countries, Eastern block countries, how do they find you and bring you in to design their courses? Well, they, they, they figure it out somehow. Cause they, <laughs> they, get, they get to us. And, you know, most of the stuff comes into the office. Although we do have, we have an, we have, I have an office in Moscow and I got an office in hmm. Brussels. I got an office in uh, Seoul, an office in Hong Kong, Beijing, uh, 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 South Africa, uh, representatives in Argentina. I mean, I've got people in all parts of the world. And so, you know, they, and, and we're, we're doing golf courses in all parts of the world, so people generally figure out that, hey, Jack's doing a golf course in, uh, in China. We ought to be able to figure out where is he doing in China. We talk to those people. Are we talk to, we're doing a golf course in Russia. How do we talk to those people over there if we want one in in Bulgaria, you know, I mean, they, they figure out how to get to us. Other, otherwise, and, and our people are always uh, prospecting. And frankly, you know, the Internet's been a great source of our business. Hmm. Uh, I would say that uh, 10 years ago, we got, oh, maybe 5% of our leads off of the Internet. And I'd say today we probably get 60, 70% of our leads off the Internet. Wow, that's amazing. I would have never guessed that. I wouldn't have either, but it it's actually is a fact. That's great. My guest is Jack Nicholas. Mr. Nicholas, there's lots of talk, obviously, about Tiger Woods eventually breaking your record of 18 major championships. Tiger sits at 13 right now as we speak. A remarkable stat that very few people realize is that you finished second 19 times out of the 162 majors you played in. So if you won half of those, you'd have 28 major championships. I think what Tiger's doing is incredible, but, I mean, let's be realistic here. If you had 28 majors, we wouldn't talk about Tiger breaking your record at all. Who faced the stiffer competition, you or Tiger? For my, well, for my vote, you did. Well, thank you. I, but first of all, I failed 19 times then. That's sort of the way I look at it, uh, Brian. I mean, I, I, got, I got beat or I failed 19 times where I, where I came close, and I, I won 18 times. So, uh, but, but, you know, you, you're going to lose sometimes when you're, when you're in contention, and you're going to... And I think that the, the the competition that I had, I think there it was very difficult. I mean, and the, the reason I think it was difficult is because we had fewer really good players, and but the real, but the good players we had all learned how to win, and they'd all won five, six, seven, eight, nine majors. You know, Arnold and Gary and uh, Trevino and Watson. Those guys all knew how to win. And if I was if I slipped up, they were ready to play. Uh, the problem today is that we have we have Tiger. And then we have so many other really, really good players, but there's just not enough, they don't get enough exposure of winning to really uh, feel confident coming down the stretch that they're going to make it happen. So I, I don't know really how to answer the question properly. Uh, you know, do, uh, there are probably more good players today, but yet uh, ours had, had the experience to learn how to win. So it's just, it's, you know, you, you, you don't know really what is right. We hear the story about a young tiger taping a sheet with your stats on his bedroom wall and kind of being fixated on catching you someday. Who was the guy that you were maybe fixated on? Was it Arnold Palmer as you were growing up and you said, that's who I want to be or that's who I want to break all of his records? Well, Bobby Jones actually. was. I, I, Bobby Jones won the U.S. Open at Scioto in 1926. And I grew up at Scioto. I started playing golf course in 1950. And there were many golfers that, that are members of that club that were there when Jones won, including my father. And uh, uh, so I never heard anything other but Jones, Jones, Jones. And I never really thought anything about breaking any records. It was never. We didn't have that kind of pressure. Tigers had it on from day one. But, I mean, it wasn't until 1970 that I won my 10th major and I walked in the press room, and Bob Green of the AP said, Jack, that's 
10 majors you've won now. Congratulations. You only got three more to tie Bobby Jones. I said, what? I mean, to be very honest with you, I had never counted him. I never even dreamed of it. Never even entered my mind. And I, I, mean, I never thought Bobby Jones' 13 majors was, was, was uh, you know, approachable. And then all of a sudden, I, I was three away from it. Then I actually focused on it. And uh, then when I focused on it, I got past it. And, uh, you know, I, I just played, uh, tried to win what I could after that. And, uh, uh, but you pretty much, you know, once you pass something, you lose your drive to go on. Uh, and uh, uh, even though I wanted to play golf, I just didn't, uh, I, I didn't drive as hard as I did when I was younger. But, uh, you know, I'm, my record is what it is. I certainly, I, I certainly wish, uh, I'm quite happy with what it is. Do I wish it was more? Sure. Now I do. Sure. But how did I know Bob, how did I know Tiger Woods was going to come along? Or how did Bobby know, Jones know Jack Nicholas was going to come along? You know, it, it really isn't, it really isn't important. Uh, Tiger is a great player. He's, uh, He's doing and dominating the game today. He's uh, he's a nice young man. He's uh, handles himself well. The game's in good hands. So if he breaks my record, you know, more power to him. I just want to be the first one to shake his hand. And obviously, nobody wants their records to be broken. But you know, I think it brings more excitement into the game to have uh, have Tiger chasing my record. Obviously, it puts my name in the newspaper every day, right beside his. So sure. you know, it's not it's not all that bad for me either. So. Uh, but it's uh, it's kind of exciting. It's kind of fun to watch him play. He's, just, he's a very, very talented young man and uh, uh, fun to watch. One of the things that's so different, obviously, today is compared to when you played the prize money. I mean, Tiger's made $93 million on the tour. <laughs> you won 113 tournaments, and you earned a little bit less than $6 million in your entire career on the tour. Obviously, I would guess you're earning a lot more than that with Nicholas Design and your other endeavors now, but do you ever look back and just go, gosh, I played in the wrong era. I could be making a lot more money now with 113 victories. Well, I think Ben Hogan actually looked like he thought maybe he played in the wrong era. Yeah, no I kidding. His, his total, I think his total lifetime earnings were like 241000 Wow. So, I mean, if you really look at that, I mean, it's just times change. And, you know, I'm, what I look at is I think that the kids today are really blessed. They have the opportunity to play golf for a living. And we played golf and had to be successful so we could go make a living. You know, I mean, with outside things, you never made a living on a golf course when we played. Right. And today the kids can actually play, play golf and, and, and don't have to do anything else. They can play golf and make a living. That's, and I think that's neat. And we were the forerunners of that. We, uh, you know, the group in front of us, the, 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 uh, the Hogan's and the Nelson's and the Sneed's uh, were the forerunners of that. And then we came in and then we were the ones that started to get it to the next level and then Tiger and his group are taking it to the next level, and I think it's I think it's great for the game. Jack, Father's Day is next weekend. All four of your sons work for you, and you won your last major in 1986, the Masters, with your son Jack carrying your bag for you. That had to have been a wonderful thrill. Talk about the wonderful bond that you've built with your sons. You know, honestly, I see a lot of athletes who play, and they're so involved in their athletic endeavors that their relationship with their family suffers. And I've got to tip my hat to you because you seem like you're so close with your family, and I think that's just so admirable. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Well, that's always been the most important thing in my life, Brian. I mean, 
my wife and I grew up in the Midwest in Ohio. We both have same same values. We both felt like we both came from close families, and we both felt like family was the most important thing. And you know, I you know I I, I probably could have won a lot more tournaments if I if I would have sort of been selfish enough to leave my family. But I just didn't want to do that. My family is what I wanted to be part of, and uh, uh, my kids are all working with me. They're all doing things that are similar to what I do. They, they're they all trying to handle their kids the way, uh, you know, I handle them, which makes me proud. Uh, you know, I've, I've, got, I've got a good group of kids, and uh, they... Uh, uh, and they're good citizens, and they and they do well. And I'm, and I think that's what my wife and I are most proud of. Right. I mean, it's just it's it's such a wonderful trait and quality that you have. And think of all the the generations that you've affected. Last question for you. Obviously, you've played the game of golf all your life. Uh, you've been there with golf during some incredibly joyous moments, like we discussed with the 1986 Masters. But golf has been an outlet for you for some incredibly somber moments as well. What are the main lessons the game of golf can teach us if we play pay close enough attention? Well, I think the game the game is a a game that you you, you get out of it what you put into it, and you get uh, uh, you know you, you get you develop relationships with people. I think you play eighteen holes of golf with somebody, you get to know them pretty well. You're exactly uh, right. Yeah, you you know what, what kind of a sport they are. You know what kind of a personality they got. You know whether they're a hothead or or whether they they'll, they'll enjoy the game for the game, or they're or they're or they're just they're driven by total competition, or they're driven for greed, or whatever they're driven by. And you find that out pretty quickly on the golf course. So it's a it's a great game for that. It's a great game for for people. It's a great game for 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 a father to play with a son. It's a great game for a grandfather to play with his grandson or granddaughter. And you know, it can be played by all walks of life and people of all handicaps and all abilities. It's, it's just a marvelous game, and it's, uh, there's not many games like that. Uh, so uh, to, be, to be fortunate enough to be involved in that game all my life has been a very, very special thing for me. And, it's, uh, uh, you, know, it's, it, and you meet the same people on the way down that you meet on the way, way up, Brian. You, you know that. And uh, so you better, you better watch your P's and Q's on the way up because you're going to have to have to either either you're gonna to have to eat them on the way down if you haven't handled it right well it's great great advice and uh it's such an honor to speak with you you've always conducted yourself in such a wonderful manner on and off the course and i really wish you the best in all of your endeavors moving forward thank you brian nice to talk with you good to talk to you too you're listening to sports business radio we'll be right back and let me see what spring is like on a jupiter and mars now, here's Brian's conversation with the late NBA Commissioner David Stern from December 2016 at the Sports Business Radio Roadshow presented by Boingo Wireless in New York City. A conversation conducted in front of a studio audience. Without further ado, we all know this gentleman. Let's give David Stern a big round of applause. Thank you for being here. My pleasure, always. So the the backstory with uh, former Commissioner Stern and myself is that in 2004 we launched Sports Business Radio, and David was kind enough to be my my first guest. He was just joking uh, in the green room that he launched my career. So. He hasn't let me go since. It's really impossible. So let's start off by we start these roadshows. We do them in front of students. Let's talk about when you were a student, if you can remember back to when you were a student. That was before the I won't flood. give out the years, but no, you went no to problem. undergrad at Rutgers. 
Correct. And you correct I'm so me if I'm old that I remember we traveled down to Asbury Park, New Jersey to watch the Floyd Patterson Sonny Liston fight. Wow. That lasted for something under 30 seconds, I think. Sonny just came out and decked him. And I just uncovered a yellowed paper where in the Asbury Park Sun, they asked my colleagues and I, colleagues, my fellow students and I, <laughs> if we would stand up and cheer because they wanted to get a photo after the fight was completely over. And everyone looked at us like we were crazy. We're standing there cheering after this 30-second fight. So I was a sort of a, quote, sports fan back then. But you were a history student, right, at Rutgers? Well, you have to list a major. Okay. You know? so, so, so the least intrusive was history and <laughs> political science. So I was a history and poli-sci major. And uh, we've got students here from the Marist Center of Sports Communications, but we also have students here from Columbia Sports I'm Management I'm going to root it all for you. I mean, I, you know, we used to play Crazy Eights and Sexy Sixes, poker, <laughs> Gin, bridge, unit. No, not bridge. That was later. No, I mean, I, you know, I wasn't, you know, I did okay in school, but I wasn't the most serious uh, and applied student you ever uh, saw. So, at what point did you gravitate to sports? Because you go from. Well, I, I was always a sports fan. Okay. When I grew up in New York City, uh, my dad, we lived on, eight, actually, close by, we lived on 18th Street and 9th. And then we moved uptown to 24th Street between 7th and 8th. And uh, the garden was on 49th and 50th, the old garden. And if you went to school in New York, let's say junior high school, you got something called the GO card. I think it was government organization. And for 50 cents, you got tickets. You got into the garden on a Saturday afternoon. So I was a big Knicks fan, a big sports fan. Uh, I was a I was a baseball giant fan. I never set foot into Ebbets Field where the hated Dodgers were, although I did occasionally go to a Yankee game. It, it, was, it was in my small world. Rheingold was the sponsor of the Giants. Schaefer was the uh, sponsor. Schaefer Beer was the sponsor of the Dodgers. And uh, Ballantyne was the sponsor of the Yankees. And the Rheingold salesman was much nicer. And so I used to get <laughs> tickets to uh, the polo grounds when the Giants were playing there. I was a big Giants fan, a big, uh, a big Knicks fan. I didn't come to Giants football until later. Um, you know, and don't tell Gary Bettman this, but I really didn't grow up being interested in hockey either. Okay, we won't tell him. Okay. So, Although he's a good friend, we've never had that discussion. Uh-oh. We'll, we'll, we'll try and I'll keep, keep it down. Okay. information from him. You were outside general counsel for the NBA. How does that then That's lead? That's it. Okay, so, so I graduated law school and went to work for a firm, Proskauer Rose. It's now the name of it. It used to be Proskauer Rose Getz and Mendelssohn. And shortly after I joined it, or when I joined it, they had a client, the NBA. It was not a big client. Uh, and, uh, you know, basically when the young associate, who was a year older than I was, 
went, you know, left to go back to Philadelphia, where he was from, I went into the partner in charge and said, I had plenty of time and plenty of space to take over what he was doing. I would most, char- I would most charitably characterize that statement as not entirely truthful, since I was busy, but the opportunity to work in sports was, like, too compelling. And so I started working almost immediately in uh, a case entitled Hawkins versus the NBA. Uh, Connie, Connie Hawkins, right? Connie Hawkins. Connie Hawkins. And uh, I worked on that case seemingly day and night until mm-hmm. it was settled. Uh, and then I began working on a variety of other of other cases. You know, when the ABA was formed, there were lawsuits between NBA teams and ABA teams. Uh, I was constantly litigating. And then I guess there was the uh, yes, the Robertson versus NBA, our Players Association sued us. The ABA sued the NBA. And so between my colleagues and I, we were running around the country doing depositions and the like. Uh, and that case was set, both cases were settled in 1976. And by, by 1978, I was spending my full time on NBA matters, having become a partner, I think, in 74. And then Larry O'Brien said, would you like to come over to the NBA? Now, I, I don't know how to sort of set the scene here, but I was the 24th employee of the NBA in 1978. So 24th, like in the history of the league, you were number 24. Well, I was the 24th. There were 23 other employees. There were no, I was the first general counsel. Okay. Uh, I don't think we had someone in charge of basketball. (laughs) I know that seems strange, but... Cy Gordine was sort of the deputy commissioner, a lawyer. Uh, he was sort of in charge of basketball. It was after I was there for a while that we hired, I can't remember, I think it was Joe Axelson, first general manager who came to work for the NBA as the head of basketball operations. Uh, and uh, it was a tiny, tiny place with a very small business. But, uh, and frankly, I took the job only on the condition that the firm said I could come back after a couple of years because I didn't want to, uh, you know, why are you laughing? What's up on the hashtag? Come on, share it with us. Okay. Uh, and so, why is this guy smiling? Uh, oh, I think they're just admiring their social media posts. I see, Okay. Uh, so, you know, and, and I, I, I was afraid that if someone else took the job, it would go to another firm and I wouldn't be working on the NBA anymore because okay. I loved it. And in that role, because of Hawkins, because of litigation, I got to meet everyone. I actually had to defend the deposition of Morris Podoloff, who was the first NBA commissioner. I actually looked at the Constitution and bylaws of the NBA, the original one, which was a marked-up copy of the NHL's Constitution because the NBA was simply 
a league where hockey owners who owned buildings needed something else to put into their buildings. The, uh, you know, the college basketball was much bigger than professional basketball. Mm -hmm. And I guess at that time, I don't know how, how large the league was, but it wasn't, you know, because the NBA, I think, was a nine-team league until the late 60s when a whole slew of teams, it became a, it became a national league then. That's when Portland came in, uh, Seattle came in, uh, Houston, I think Houston started out in San Diego, but then moved to Houston or something like that. It was, uh, you know, there was a, a slew of teams as we grew into a national footprint for expansion prices like of a million seven, I think, or a million seven fifty was the Phoenix expansion price, which the owners bragged to me. They put a small down payment and they paid the rest with the advanced season ticket money. And then they stayed ahead of the curve. Uh, if I could describe, I mean, if I, you know, it was just absolutely uh, hand to mouth at best. Uh, but and I now, $24 billion is the TV deal for the NBA. The average franchise, according to Forbes, is $1.5 billion for the average NBA franchise. And, and David, you know, when you've been on my show before, I think you pointed out the last time you were on, in 1978, the league was generating $78 million worth of revenue. Now it's $8 billion. And yeah. I, you know, yeah. I've always said I've It's admired, gone up a bit, hasn't it? Yeah. Okay. It's, it's unbelievable because when you came in, you know, games were tape delayed. Uh, the league had image problems with drugs if I look at when David Stern came in and then where you left it on February 1st of 2014, it's, it's, I've always said, and I'm not just saying this because he's here, I've said this on the show before, this is the best commissioner in the history of sports that, That's right why here. I come back. No, but I mean, look at those numbers. That's, that's right. phenomenal. You know, the reality is, and I think this is what your students will learn, uh, it's always a team effort. And right. I had the luxury when I was general counsel. Larry O'Brien was a great delegator. And so I had the luxury of being able to put together a team and probably hired the first 150 people. Myself, they sort of came through or did something. I, you know, it's a, uh, you know, one gentleman named Billy Marshall, he was a buyer for Jordan Marsh. And I said, you mean... There's actually people that buy merchandise because <laughs> we were doing about forty million dollars uh, a year. Now it's about three billion. And Billy was a buyer at Jordan Marsh in Boston, and he said yes. I said okay. Well, how would you like to be the head of our merchandising division? And he was uh, Brian McIntyre, mm -hmm. who was PR. our PR head for a lot of years. Yeah. His claim to fame, I always kid him. He got. I say arrested, he said detained, because he was selling a competing, uh, a competing game program outside of Chicago Stadium. I thought he was a, uh -uh. an entrepreneurial guy, and I brought him in. Uh, and, and that was it, everyone. Ed Desser, who was our head of broadcasting for 20 years, was with the Lakers, and used to tell me what we were doing wrong. And I said, okay, wise ass, how would you like to come and do that. So he got into his 280Z and came cross country and uh, 
He was the head of broadcasting for 20 years. So it was a, a lot of interesting people who we ran into along the way. Uh, and uh, sooner or later, it got too big for me to do the hiring. I think when I stepped down on, in 2014, we were pushing 1,200 employees, but it was, it was a great ride, and it was a team effort. After a while, I was learning more about management by what I didn't know than what I knew, because you have to learn how to delegate, you have to get good people around you, and you have to let them go and do whatever it is that they do well. So it was very much a team effort. So Rick Welts, who's now the president Rick of the Welts. Warriors, and worked for you. So let me read this to you. This is a quote from him. Back in the day when people had home telephones, you'd drag home, and inevitably, at exactly 10 o'clock at night, the phone would ring, and would be on the phone for 45 minutes. At 10 o'clock, it was Uncle David. And by the end of the call, you'd be ready to run through a wall the next day for the NBA. That's an exaggeration. But, <laughs> but the, people the reality worked for you was for a long we, time. We, a long time. I, I love when I get visited. I have an office on Fifth Avenue about six blocks up from the NBA, and it's the only downside of its physical location is it's across the street from Trump Tower. <laughs> <laughs> so it's getting there. Getting First Trump reference. Depending... Depending upon who's demonstrating on that day, it could be, you know, so it's hard to walk around there. But, but people uh, come up, and I always kid, because there's a receptionist there, and I say, oh, I fired this guy. You know, that's when <laughs> Gary came up, or Rick Welts came up, or Scott O'Neill came up, or Val Ackerman, who's the commissioner of the uh, Big East right, Conference. Right, was with the WNBA, I think. She, before that, she started out life as my special assistant. Wow. Uh, and so there are a lot of alum mm -hmm. scattered. Uh, Chris Granger, I was just out of the opening of the uh, Golden One Center, which is Sacramento's new building, which is beautiful. But he was the head of team marketing and business operations for the NBA, and now he's the president for business operations of the Sacramento Kings. And they're likely to sell out all year in a beautiful new arena. So there are a lot of people, and we all, you know, we all did this together. It was a, a very much a team effort, and we played off of each other in a good, in a very positive way. Always deciding that we were going to do more the next time that same issue or event came around. When we mentioned that we were going to have you as our guest for this show, everyone wants to know, hey. What's David Stern doing now? And I've done my research, but let's hear from you. What are you doing now? Well, I am a senior advisor. That's a good phrase. Uh, I'm the CEO of DJS Global Enterprise, DJS Global Advisors. And uh, I'm a senior advisor to the NBA. I'm a senior advisor to a, a very successful venture capital firm, in New York, Graycroft Partners. I'm a senior advisor to the strategy group of Price Waterhouse Coopers. They do uh, telecommunications, information communications, and entertainment, including sports. And I'm a senior advisor to PJT Partners, which is an investment bank headed up by uh, Paul Taubman, the former president of, uh, co president of uh, Morgan Stanley. And, uh, you know, has a pretty big practice in sports and media-related things. Uh, I'm uh, spending more time on uh, NGOs 
that I had the opportunity to do. I'm on the board of the Thurgood Marshall College Fund. I'm on the board of Jazz at Lincoln Center. I'm on the board of the Paley Center for Media. Wow. And on top of that, I'm advising four sports-related startups in the technology field, which is great fun. Let's so, talk about those for a minute. So correct me if I'm wrong, but you've got LiveLike, which is a VR company. LiveLike VR. StatMuse. StatMuse, which uses uh, artificial intelligence to give you any answer to any sports-related question that you might have about leagues as they ingest the data. It's fascinating. I've had a demonstration from uh, Alexa, the uh, Amazon it, it, Alexa is the voice. I, I'm forgetting what the name of the Amazon device is, but um, and is it the Hero? Yeah, Echo. Yeah. Echo. Amazon Echo. And you know, and it's chilling. You know, who has the most rebounds in a game in NBA history? And you know, people you, like me. Oh, it must be Chamberlain. It must be Dennis Rodman. It's Oakley. It's, wow. it's oak. Can you imagine? I think it was like 39. I was like, okay, Alexa, don't, you know. And then you ask <laughs> your questions, and it's like, it's creepy, but great. And you can begin to see the use of artificial intelligence. Uh, LiveLike is, happens to be a, a VR solution. Not quite the immersive, as immersive of some others, but it was, uh, it was used for the... Penn State-Wisconsin game Saturday night by Fox Sports. And you can use it either with a headset or with your iPad to move it around. You have to be flexible. It's kind of interesting, and I think that's going to... It's sort of a middle step to uh, the having to put on a headset for a whole game. And and the features at LiveLike are... It's going to ultimately have two avatars are in the suite with you. And you turn around, you don't see the arena, you see the suite, and there are screens in the suite for advertising. And ultimately, those avatars will represent two people who through Wi-Fi, maybe Boingo, I don't know, through Wi-Fi are watching the game with you. You know, So you could have relatives in different parts of the world and you could be watching the game with them. You're, they're sort of... You know, it's kind of neat, and and there's a board where you can get the Twitter feed just like they're sitting behind us. Isn't it amazing how so we've got Boingo here connectivity? You know, and Doug it's, always says it's like you, connectivity at your arena is like having toilets for your fans. Like you, you, yeah. it's the same now. You know, it's so interesting the way. Well, all right, let, we'll talk about that. Let me mention the last two. I don't okay. want to. Yeah, you know, I'll, be in, I'll be in trouble. Okay. Uh, one is uh, Fubo, which is a streaming service that yes. has... Uh, They're really growing. Really growing. Mostly soccer. Yeah. Uh, what you Americans call soccer. We call it football, but that's a whole other question. And and it's about, I think it's pretty close to making an announcement about an expanded programming agenda. And you want to break any news here? No. Yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> but I'm an advisor there. And it's... It's really interesting. How, I mean, fans find it. If you're a fan of soccer, the beautiful game, and you want to be at the Derby or El Clasico or whatever, you find your way to that. And I was interested in that because I just wanted to see where, where this streaming stuff was going. Call it over the top, call it whatever you want to call it, OTT. 
but it's, you know, it's upon us. And given what I thought was coming down the pike, which was Sling TV and... Uh, Apple now, TV. Apple TV. Well, this is live streaming, so, you know, it's really going to be the, the, the what Disney was talking about in starting a, live, a, a, a streaming service for rights that it holds but doesn't exploit. What AT&T just launched last week, a $35 a month service that involves sports. Uh, and, and, and so, you know, and, and I don't know anything uh, about the NBA's current negotiations or anything, but I read in the newspaper last week that Amazon was looking for sports programming, obviously for a streaming service. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Facebook made a deal to stream NBA Development League games. So I, I, I knew it, sort of knew it was coming, and I wanted to be in and see how it goes. And it's really, really interesting because together with the connectivity, you know, we've actually been doing it for years and years. People don't realize that uh, because NBA League Pass, right, which started out as just a direct TV and then a digital cable uh, programming, had actually... When we went internet, well, we went domestically and globally. You can subscribe to direct to uh, NBA League Pass International uh, on your smart device. So we've been streaming, in effect. For I don't know how many. It may it may be as much as eight or ten years. I just can't remember. Maybe it's seven or eight years. So you guys were on the cutting edge. No, well, we were, we always tried everything, but now suddenly it, it dawned on me. And I guess I've been in Fubo. Must be over a year, uh, but I said, "Boy, this is—if this works, this is going to be really interesting." And it is going to work, obviously. And it's not unrelated to, in my view, some of the issues that the NFL is having mm-hmm. with a decline. Uh, some of the issues that ESPN is having with the loss of subscribers. I mean, you know, when you cord can, cutting, well, yeah, or yes. But it's not, it's not so much a rejection of the sport, say I, as recognition of the ability that you can get it when you want it. And all of these new services, and I'm, I'm intellectually capable of understanding them, but I'm technologically disadvantaged by being able to actually do it. But, but they all have, you know, uh, DVR capability right. and you know and you can store it you can run it you can delay it you can do anything you want to do to it and and you'll soon you'll be doing cr- incredible things with it and uh, finally I'm uh, an advisor to Shot Tracker which is Magic uh, Johnson too right yes Magic Johnson right he yes he's a much bigger investor than I am <laughs> uh, <laughs> And uh, but it's uh, really interesting. I've uh, been out to their headquarters in Kansas City, and Shot Tracker is through. It's you know, it's basically it's a wearable devices. It's you put a uh, a sensor in a little gadooger on your sneaker, uh, <laughs> and you uh, you light up the gym, meaning you put a sensor on the ceiling of the gym. And they have an arrangement with Spalding where they have a sensor in a particular model of a Spalding ball. Now, 
It's kind of interesting because I'm learning about how you have to test the ball. It has to bounce within so many inches of the last time it bounced to be, you know, accepted. And, and the range of acceptability with the sensor is better than most balls without it. So they they finally mastered that. And at that point, on your smart device or on the coach's iPad, you get real-time statistics. In other words, there's the screen in front of you, and you're watching the 10 players on the court. They're, little, they're represented by little circles, and you can, you can tell when the ball is passed, when the rebound is gotten, when the basket is made. And so it's going to lessen the role of student managers at mm-hmm. practice because in the big programs, like at the Big Ten, they're all charting shots. You've got an instant charting of shots. Uh, and uh, now, and it's all without cameras. So that's really going to, I think, change the world of uh, statistical keeping. And, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be, and this is, I, I, I didn't get involved with the, what we think of as wearables because I just, it boggled my mind, but I, you know, I just picture that day when the assistant coach is in a locker room someplace or a war room sending messages directly to another <laughs> assistant coach on the bench saying, uh, player X, his hydration is lousy. His uh, heartbeat is too high. His lactic acid is congealing. Uh, his, you know, his blood pressure is high. And the facial recognition tells me that there's, he'd love to be any place but on the court right now. So it would be a good idea for you to replace him. Uh, and it sort of raised, I mean, maybe I'm not that interested because I'm, I'm, I'm trying not to think about it because it, it makes it all robotic and takes sort of the spontaneity out of the game. But it's coming. Because when you add to the analytics right. that have led up to it, so you can tell me what my PER is. What does PER stand for? Anyway, uh, per game. I don't, I don't want to know. Okay? <laughs> it's, uh, it's really quite remarkable. I mean, we're going to, you know, I don't, it's actually indicative of what's happening in the world at large. Sports is really, the, if I have a message, sports is the canary in the mine of, of globalization, of technology, of virtually every subject. Where does it get tried out in sports? So in, in looking at a number of startups that I have outside of the sports world, uh, the data that is in the process of being collected about you poor people and me is un, it's remarkable. And I, we saw one yesterday that a bat company can tell you where the ball is hitting the bat. Uh, and so you can, you know, do all kinds of good stuff. And uh, it's really, it, and, and in terms of your shopping experience and why when you go someplace on the web to look up a particular product and suddenly you see offers coming in from unrelated Places to sell you that same or a similar product. We're, uh, you know, we're owned, uh, and I think the same thing is, you know, and and a lot of it coming out of sports, I think, as well. 
So when someone comes to David Stern and they say, I want you to invest in my company, what's the criteria that you're looking for? You've talked a lot about tech, but what are you looking I, for? Uh, I, I send them to somebody else. I, uh, <laughs> I, that person uh, goes, David, you should no, invest in No, 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 no. I, I, I only invest in things that come in through Greycroft Partners, either that they have made their own investment in or that We've decided because of the stage of the company, they won't be investing at this time, but I like it and invest personally. So, but that's it. Um, it's all, you know, uh, it, I'm laughing because when it was announced that, uh, that there was a round in, uh, Shot Tracker, mm-hmm. and they quoted Magic and they quoted me the next day, you know, that weekend, my mailbox filled up with proposals. Oh, no, <laughs> this can't be. And the same thing happened when, uh, I guess there was a Forbes did a story on StatMuse, and I gave a quote, or maybe it was Lifelike, I can't remember which one, or maybe it was Shot. I can't remember. And the next thing I know, Forbes says, would you like to come to your, to our 30, under 30 conference in uh, Boston. I said, what does that have to do with me? Uh, <laughs> and they said, well, you'll be with Richard Branson and uh, Ashton Kutcher and Jim Breyer, all these well-known. I said, I said, this would be proving the concept that you can't fool all of the people all of the time, or maybe you can. But I actually went up and did a panel, and it was, it was fun. And uh, because the beauty to me... The beauty of sports, at least through my career, and the beauty of life in many ways, is you can be a continual student. Mm-hmm. There's always something to learn. And and being around young, vibrant, lively venture capitalists who speak in a tongue that is so foreign to me that it's really, it was frightening. It take, it's taken me two years to learn all the acronyms that spin off their, and, they, and they're meaningful acronyms and they're easy enough and one time I said, stop, stop. If you give me your SDK, I'll give you my API, and I'll trade you for your MRR. You give me your CAC, and you give me your ACV. And I think, what are you guys talking about? Uh, and they said, okay, okay, we'll, we'll explain it to you. So I'm a slow learner, but I'm a learner, and it's been great to have to learn that. And it's been great to learn something about investment uh, banking as well. And in terms of the strategy group of PricewaterhouseCoopers, which only does about $12 billion a year in advisory strategy fees, it's great to just sit there and learn about the scope and what companies do and the like on a global basis. And I'm probably, for for all of the above reasons and more, I'm I'm looking into, I'm going to run out to the Consumer Electronics Show along with 180,000 of my closest friends, I suppose, in Las Vegas in the first week in January, and just to keep learning more. And even that show, which started out as electronic products, now is turning into an auto show to some degree because of autonomous driving, or whatever you call it, driverless cars. Uh, so it's, and it's all connected, and, it's, and in some ways it's connected through sports. We're going to open it up to questions in a little bit, so get your questions ready. But I want to cover a few kind of quick-hitting topics with you. So the NBA, CBA, both sides can opt out December 15th. I know you're only a senior advisor. You're not sitting at the table. But 
give me an idea and us an idea of as the commissioner you work for the owners but you're also trying to maintain good relationship with the players what is that dynamic like as you're trying to reach a new agreement i think you're on the you're almost on the same side nobody wants to opt out the amount of money f- coursing through the veins of the league is extraordinary and that has a wonderful you know wonderful effect of calming things down and what i read in the newspapers is they're getting close to a deal and i can understand why and i i really think there is a shared interest we've had some issues in the past um i think it you know it was at a different stage in our development and it was a different relationship with the uh with the union but i think michelle roberts the head of the union is interested in our players mm-hmm. and i think adam silver the commissioner is interested in his owners and his players and so i think they're going to they're going to do fine and uh and i think it's wonderful that they're developing a close relationship In the NFL right now, the Rams recently moved from St. Louis to Los Angeles. There are reports that the Chargers may move from San Diego to Los Angeles. We're seeing relocations. In the NBA, I credit you with saving Sacramento and saving New Orleans. I mean, you really fought for those teams. You were just in Sacramento. They named a street after you there yeah. for for heck's sake. So, here's my question to you. These leagues, the NFL generates 12 billion dollars a year. Right. Instead of having a team move like the Chargers, why wouldn't you as the league loan that team money, play the bank to build a 900 million dollar venue and keep the team in that city? It's not like the olden days where these leagues didn't have tons of money. I don't think it's good when we see relocation and well, I, I think I, I I can't take credit because honestly enough teams have moved on my watch that you know I I don't come here with clean hands I mean we had I don't know whether you know I mean remember the Sacramento Kings started out as the Rochester Royals and then they became the Kansas City Kings then they became the Kansas City Omaha Kings then they became the Sacramento Kings uh you know does anybody think that there's much jazz in Utah. <laughs> well, I was okay. wondering about that. That was the New Orleans Jazz and actually think about it. There aren't that many lakes in LA, but the Minneapolis Lakers moved to LA. Um, that wasn't on your watch. No, no, that was a long time ago. But that was the first sort of team out west. The New Jersey Nets. The New Jersey Nets. Seattle's uh, the one that probably Well, the Nets don't count. You know, that's they moved from Long Island. Uh you know but i but i you know right that's right that's right the, the, they played in the armory under a gentleman by the name of Arthur Brown in in Teaneck New Jersey in, in the New Jersey Nets so oh, can wow. the leagues play bank no i don't think they 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 can help but there has to be an essential accommodation between the team and the city uh and my concern always was that I always believe that it's most of the time it's about management. Uh I think that the the New Orleans team was you know it wasn't being managed at the highest possible level and the owner was flailing a bit and I made the mistake of saying to the owners maybe we should buy it in 
And they said yes. They made the mistake of saying yes. So for a year, we, the NBA owned the team, and then we were able to sell it to the best buyer in the market, Tom Benson, who also owns the Saints, and right. they're sort of co-located in this one place. And we made a deal with the state, which was very generous to keep the team there, and so we assured that it's there because I thought that the fans who had supported it there deserved a better shot. In Sacramento, we had the best fans over the years. They were totally nuts. Anyone that could have set Phil Jackson by ringing cowbells, you got to like them, uh, and, uh, and, and in good fun. And, uh, and so, but the team just was in a spiral downward. The city stepped up with a imaginative financing plan led by Kevin Johnson, and our NBA owner said, okay, let's keep it there. And to me, at least, uh, if your fans support you and you're doing very well, you should owe them a shot, however you try to work it out, of keeping a team there. Uh, that's all. Do you think we'll see a team back in Seattle? I'm in Portland. A lot of people love that rivalry. They're loud up there. I'll give you Commissioner Silver's phone. <laughs> okay, yeah. I mean, that was, that was a tough one, I'm, I'm yeah. sure. Well, and they don't know, always work out. No, they don't. But there was a, I, I went out there while the team was there and testified in the State House. Yep. And someone suggested that if they needed to build a building, the players should take a cut in salary. I didn't think that was going to work that no. well. Never seen that happen. Yeah, and so, and I didn't think it should happen. Uh, and so they looked at a lot of different options, but then when they ran out of options, they moved and the NBA owners approved it. And I, you know, I think that the dynamics of the leagues have changed. If you, if you, uh, take in a team or expand by uh, issuing another franchise, every team takes a cut in its collective revenues. You know, it takes a drop. So you share with them your network television, you share with them your licensing revenue, you share with them their, your uh, international revenues and the like. And all of a sudden, those amounts have gotten sufficiently large that it's a pretty large, you know, it really takes the, the price of an expansion franchise really up high. And in some, some owners think that all you're doing is substituting. It's almost like a loan. You take a billion dollars in, and over a period of years for a franchise, you pay it back to that team by virtue of the cut in network television revenues, licensing revenues, and international revenues. So it's going to be an interesting issue to see what happens with expansion all around. We are seeing athletes in all sports, coaches as well, speak up on social issues. I would say more so in the last 6 to 12 months than I can remember seeing, other than back to the days of Muhammad Ali, Arthur Ashe, people like that. They're, they're sticking their necks out there a little bit more. I mean, let's yeah. face it, Michael Jordan didn't really stick his neck yeah. out there. Tiger Woods, what do you think about this? I, I think that... It's too easy to group it. You know, Bill Russell was there on the mall in Washington with Dr. King. Okay, so the NBA has a rich history of players being involved. Um, and we've always encouraged our players to speak out. I think that 
and we've given them, I mean, this enormous platform. Mm-hmm. The first thing we do with players nowadays is assist them in getting on social media. You know, it used to be something new, but now it's great. Whether and we're here at the we're here at the offices of the Player Tribune, which is a, one way for players to do it. There's the what's it called the the undefeated, the interrupted, the uninterrupted. You know, you name it. There are different. <laughs> You can be out every place, and then when you have the players, uh, you know, and they're and they're they not only have their social media. I remember, I guess, which I can't remember which Olympics it was when Instagram was relatively new, and we, you know, our players were photographing each other sleeping on the plane or right. something like that. You know, yeah. but it, it was great. It was great, and and you knew where it was going because, and that's great. And now. Players are interviewed pre-game, they're interviewed post-game, so the platform is there, mm-hmm. and they should speak out, and we've always encouraged it. I recognize it's happening more now, and that's a good thing, uh, and it should happen in good ways. Players should use their voice. They're celebrity citizens, and it gives me a source of great pride because when, in the early days, the reputation of, quote, the average NBA player weighed down by a lot of unfortunate incidents was not very high. Mm-hmm. I used to say their reputation was in the buried under the pyramid, <laughs> but now their reputations, appropriately so, are at the top of the pyramid. Right. And so these are celebrities that have a great voice, and why not? So with all this tech and connectivity, are we ever going to see you on social media? You know, there were a lot of fake David Stearns. <laughs> oh, yeah, was, there were While a lot. I was commissioner, and I used to, you know, make me a little nervous. So I, I used to, I, I shied away. You may not see me, but I'll be watching in other ways, in shape and form. But I, I'm not sure my uh, battered body could take the assault that would come if I were identified as being on social media. So I'm not planning to be. Gambling and gaming. You said recently the notion that that's going to lead to bad things has gotten to be an outdated notion as we learn more about illegal gaming and the size of the market. Yeah. um, I think it's time to legalize sports betting. And my, my view on that changed dramatically when fantasy sports, daily fantasy came. Mm -hmm. So what is, no, that's not betting. And then there's this argument, is it betting? Is it not betting? It is what it is, and it's a way you can make money. Uh, you know, I actually thought it wasn't gambling, but everyone else, because if 3% of the players win 90% of the money, that sounds to me like a game of skill. But it had enough of a gambling component to it that it attracted people who thought they were gambling and thought they had a fair shot, even if they didn't. And, uh, and so I said, ah, let's I throw up my hands. And then you hear all of these... Uh, stats that there's $4 billion bet in Las Vegas and there's a $100 billion bet that that is bet with organized crime. Mm-hmm. And so given the fact that the uh, states are all looking for revenue sources and the federal government is too, uh, and lotteries are the worst bet there is. In other words, everyone in this room right now, having not bought a lottery ticket, statistically has about the same chance to win the lottery 
as if one of us went out and bought a lottery ticket. That's, that's how stacked the odds are. And people are encouraged to bet their money, their grocery money, to, to help education or senior citizen housing. I mean, it's ridiculous. So, and there was a time, believe it or not, ladies and gentlemen, that lotteries were illegal. It was a long time ago, uh, you know, back in the uh, in pre-flood days. But so I just think, and I'm not worried about the, there's no more risk of, uh, there's no more risk of fixes or anything than there, than, you know, than there is now. In my own view, I had moved my opposition to sports betting, uh, to that to that argument that said most of our fans are not point spread fans. They go to a game and they want to see the home team win. And the notion that they left the arena unhappy because the home team won but didn't cover was sort of I thought would change the nature of the game. But given fantasy now, where people aren't even watching games, they're watching to see how their player did and the like, uh, I think it's, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, sports will adapt. They will, um, they will, how shall I say it, will have the right enforcement mechanisms. Um, they'll find a good way to use the betting that happens to drive ratings and interest in the game because what's happening now is people I think go to not me of course but they go to places and they make proposition bets and you, the pro- proposition bet is when if I, you go to the line for two shots in the fourth period someone's going to lay you odds on what the likelihood is you're going to make one, make both, make the first make the second and around the world the same is happening and has been happening with soccer where you can place bets in the stadium. So, you know, let's get over it and move on to the next phase of our relationship with sports betting. Last question before we open it up to the audience. You're an advisor of the NBA, but I'm sure you pay attention to sports in general. If I gave you a golden ticket, and as a sports fan, you could change anything in sports right now, what would it be? Is there anything that you sit and you go, God, I can't believe that's going on? I think there... Yeah, no, 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 no. The audience member yelled, the Knicks win a championship. No, you know, I, I think that where we're heading, and this is very important, is using technology and other advances, including scheduling, to reduce injury. Because to go to a game and not see a particular player because he's been worn down or injured or the like, and I read in the morning papers that it seems like the parties are negotiating in the NBA about starting the season earlier, right? playing fewer exhibition games, cutting down on a number of back-to-backs. You'll, you'll begin, I think, to see fresher players playing. Uh, and I think that's a good thing. To me, it's just injuries. And, and to think that we used to watch football games and cheer because the quarterback had his bell rung Right. Think about that. We're gonna we're gonna regret that for a long time as players get injured in games. Um, it's uh, that's the thing that to me that deprives the fans of the full value of their fandom. We've got students here from the Marist Center for Sports Communications. We have students from Columbia University. 
We've got a microphone right here. Raise your hand if you'd like to ask David Stern a question. Please identify yourself with your name and your school. Thank you. Hi, I'm Maurice Eisman from Columbia University Sports Management Program. So uh, we've seen a trend coming that uh, the Philadelphia teams from Philadelphia, from Houston, have started to invest or, or look at investments in esports. What is your view on, on, on that sport in particular, and what do you think is the value that the NBA or NBA teams can bring to it, and vice versa? Well, I, I, I saw, you know, yes, there are teams in the NBA and elsewhere that are investing in esports team. I've said before, it sort of it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck. It's probably a duck, and these guys look like real teams and real leagues, potential. It might not, it may be my poor upbringing, but the idea of going into an arena with 20,000 fans to watching 10 people in glass booths with fast twitches playing video games, it's, it's not in my cultural background, but it is in a lot of people's backgrounds as, they, as, it, as we change generations. So that's kind of interesting to me. So I think there's a... We'll have to see. I, I, don't, I don't know that it televises spectacularly. I actually... You know, I think Turner was televising it on TBS on the nights of the NBA Finals, yeah. I think, so I was able to catch a couple... I think maybe it was a Sunday night and the game ended earlier or something like that. So, and I couldn't, I couldn't, I, I, you know, I couldn't get used to it or warm up to it, watching someone peek around the corner and getting shot. Uh, but, you know, I, I think that it's, uh, it's going to bring a whole nother uh, generation, a different kind of generation into sports. And that's a good thing. And it will fill up arenas at probably a different price point with a younger audience uh, and uh, people love competition and if you like esports I'd like to sell you a drone racing franchise that's next no, I'm, I'm kidding it's actually the drone racing you know my god where we are going to the arena I'd like to I just would like to be either the lawyer or the insurance company when those drones start to have some issues but it's coming we're looking for everything in case nobody's watching it Rugby sevens, rugby's elevens, rugby's whatever. I saw something called fight ball, which is uh, what it sounds like. Basketball, you have to, you know. There's an Indian sport called kabaddi, 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 which is some combination of rugby and wrestling, uh, you know. And people are deciding that if it's sports and it's live, it's something that you should have on television. And that's, a, that's an interesting outcome. And I think esports is right up there. I mean, the concept that it's kind of interesting. You hire a team, you put them in a dormitory, you feed them, you make them work out. They have to play video games for eight hours a day to make sure their Twitch is fast enough. Wow. Uh, it's, uh, it's not my thing, but I could understand that it could be a thing. Uh, I know that uh, the... Uh, there's a new league being formed by Activision Blizzard. They haven't contacted me yet to be commissioner. <laughs> but, uh, Are you up for that job? I'm not available. No. But I think it's an interesting idea. I really do. And I think it will, you know, 
Maybe they can combine it with drone racing. Once you rent the arena, you could have drone racing as a preliminary or afterwards. Other questions? Yeah, uh, my name is TJ Winfrey uh, from Columbia Business School. Question for you. Um, so you're the commissioner who was credited for ushering globalization basketball. Um, given the NBA's recent uh, where do you see the next frontier? Sure. Uh, that's easy. I mean, I, on my last May, I was in office, I went to uh, Mumbai. We had an office that I opened up there. Uh, we were uh, being shown there by Sony 6, I think, is the entertainment network, which also had the... Uh, I guess it's the IPL, the Indian Premier League, which was 2020 cricket. You know, short cr cricket shortened from five days to three hours. And uh, we went to a, a, a game there at 40,000 people. Uh, and I walked in. I thought a basketball game was about to take place. There were noise, lots of noise. Lots of video, lots of blaring music, lots of cheerleaders, lots of fog, uh, fog. you know, fog, smoke, you know, you're yeah. blowing out of there. Uh, and I was interviewed both on the international feed and the domestic feed, shamelessly hawking the NBA, which gets 80,000 viewers a game and the Indian Premier League gets 10 million. So you, you could see there's a delta there that's yet to be filled. But good, because... It's happening, and it will continue to happen as new generations are introduced to basketball. Basketball is a great sport. It doesn't need a lot to get started. We've had uh, a number of players. Most recently, I think Sean Marion is there for the NBA. We had, I think, Kevin Durant was there. AC Green was there. We've done a lot over there. Vivek Ranadive, one of the Anraj Bathal, two owners of Sacramento, or born in India, and so it's going to be huge, I think. It's going to, and it's going to take some time, but remember, we have lots of time. I, uh, you know, I made the deal with China Central Television in 1990, you know, and gave them our games, gave away our games so they will play them. But now it's a huge market for the NBA. It's a huge market for everyone. And so I think that there's no market that is not a good potential market for the NBA. Uh, Latin America, the NBA has offices in, I think, Mexico, Argentina, and Brazil. Maybe not Argentina. We have, we're in Europe. Headquarters are in London. Um, I'm going to go to the game there between Denver and uh, Indiana in, in January. Uh, and, you know, there's... And, it's just the world is our oyster, I think that. And I don't know that that doesn't mean necessarily teams being located there. I think it's easier for the NFL because they can play one game a week. For us, I've always said that it's within the next 10 years. I've been saying that for 30 years. Uh, Please the last time. Yeah, that's what I said last time, right? That's what I always say. It's good. And now I think Adam will pick it up. You say another ten years, but because we need more, we could have a. We need a five-team division. We need arenas. We need 
fan avidity to be at the right level. We need a financial plan. We need a television plan. Uh, but it's interesting. But there's much you can do without it. You know, we don't have a franchise in China, but we've played exhibitions there since 2004. And look what's happened there. The first time we went into Shanghai, the arena we put in, it was a great arena. All we had to add was the floor, the baskets, the lighting, the the uh, locker rooms, uh, and some seating. Uh, now there's this beautiful 20,000-seat Mercedes-Benz arena. Same, and, and there's another arena like a mile down the road that the city of Shanghai put in. And so we played a practice there and a game in the Mercedes-Benz arena. So, and it's happening all over. And, and I think in India, the interesting thing is whether, you know, there's a young man named Satnam Singh who was drafted, uh, put in the D-League, I don't know where he is. And there were a couple of Indian players on, I think, New Mexico State a couple of years back. And I just, it'll happen, and, and it will continue to grow. The beauty of being global is you don't feel enormous pressure on any one market. You just keep making the deal. So now NBA basketball is seen in over 200 countries and territories in 43 different languages, and you could follow up with, with streaming games, with social media activity, I think the activity of the NBA, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure, but I bet you it's about half is outside the United States. So this is such an enormous opportunity. And for our players, because we have so many players that travel with respect to their endorsements and other things, or we travel them. So I think it's just a win-win all around. More questions? Hi, how you doing? Uh, I'm Marcus Young from Marist College, and you talked a little bit about the NBA ownership of the New Orleans franchise. I was wondering, the biggest decision you had was the cancellation of the Chris Paul trade to the Los Angeles Lakers. As we speak, I'm in an argument <laughs> with, uh, with uh, somebody who writes for ESPN. Because okay, I'm, I'm, so I'm going to correct your language. What cancellation? <laughs> you, um, mean, you mean what, uh, the GM... Uh, was not authorized to make that trade, and acting on behalf of owners, we decided not to make it. I was I was an owner rep, so it wasn't. It, there was nothing to void. It just never got made. Uh, but when you're the commissioner, and you have two teams that are ticked off at you, as in the Lakers and Houston, and the GMs, without being wanting to be attributed, spend their time trashing you, the, the wrong impression can be granted, and. One of the few times I decided to just go radio silent and let it play out, I got killed. But that's, so the answer is, there was never a trade. It wasn't approved by me as the owner rep. All right, could I ask a different question? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, what would you say Mayors, to... so that's it? Okay. Uh-oh. Um, what would you say to a commissioner in like the MLS and a growing league like that and you came into the NBA while it was growing, and you grew that sport, uh, that league to what it is today, what would you say to a growing league like the MLS um, to expand? I, I think Don Garber's doing a great job. They have a different, every league has its own approach. They're going, they're, they're delivering these, um, you know, these very soccer-specific stadiums, and they're 20,000 seats, they look great, and I think that's the right way to go. 
They're going to get fans into them, especially as the nature of this country, the demographic makeup changes. You have to speak, you know, 178 languages to appreciate a soccer game. And that's wonderful. That's, that's great. Uh, I think the challenge is going to be the fight for TV ratings. That's where the big bucks have been. But even then, as their deals expire, the streaming capacity, you know, if you want to make deals with, you know, I, someone was showing me their being sport streaming which is, uh, you know, has a lot of soccer on it, or Goal, or Univision, Deportes, or the like. So I think they will probably have to do some new mining of how to pick up more revenue there, but they're all over it, and I think he's doing a great job. I really do. Other questions? Hey there, oh, that's loud. Hey there, Mr. Stern, my name is Billy Floyd from Marist College. And in 2006, you guys made a change to the design of the game basketball. What was the reasoning behind that change, and were there any specific players that complained about it the most? I didn't plant these questions, by the way. No, that's okay. Uh, oh, I think we changed. It wasn't the design of the ball so much as the material of the ball. We went to a synthetic. I think that's what you're referring to. And then the players said it cut their hands, and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, now I can say it. I didn't even know we were doing it. That's what a great micromanager I was. Uh-huh. A ball is a ball. What's the big deal? Uh, and I think if you go buy a, an official game ball, that's the ball you're going to buy, and that's what everyone uses, but not our players. We said to Spalding, it's not worth it. Just go back to producing the balls exactly as it is because we don't want it to affect the competitive nature of the game. Real or imagined, which it could be. Um, and so that's what happened. And, uh, you know, I get a kick out of this subject because when we were forming the WNBA, of course no one here asked about the W, uh, we had a big argument internally about whether we should use an, an, a different kind of a ball. So number one, we used what they, a, a smaller ball, which is not uncommon. And number two, our big fight was whether we should go with what we eventually went with, which was the oatmeal and white ball, as opposed to just uh, just an orange or a brown ball. And the uh, women who were driving it were very protective of the fact that they wanted to have a ball that looked just like the men's ball. Mm. And I said, we'll never sell any, and it won't be distinctive. And so I'm overruling you. We're going to make this a ball that looks different to signify the W, and that's what it's going to stand for. In the intervening years, FIBA, the International Basketball Federation, has gone to a multi to, to a two color ball the same way. Now it's like all over. They copied the WNBA into what the official ball is for leagues around the world. Uh, so the ball does have consequences and it does stand for things. And you're right. We probably didn't handle that exactly as well as we should have in terms of that particular change. By the way, uh, Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame, and this year the FIBA. 
Hall of Fame. Right. Let's give a round of applause for that. That's pretty good. <laughs> a few more questions from the students. Go ahead. Hi, Commissioner Sarah and Ryan Berger. Um, I was up at the NBA PA's new facility yesterday. It's, it's, it's incredible. Um, not a lot of people know what's sort of going on with the players and what Michelle is doing with the change of how they're unionizing. Not only the ability to obviously do the deal, but no one talks about what's going to happen after the deal if the players get what they're looking for. Um, it feels like they're sort of building a little bit of a media company themselves. I'd love to hear a little bit about what you think of if the deal happens, what's going to happen after that? What will the players, how will brands be able to approach players as a union versus individual yeah. players? Uh, you know, that's an interesting question. I, 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 good luck to them. I mean, it's hard work. We, we started with nothing, and it, we struggled to build uh, around our, uh, our ability to promote the game and the players. The players, um, how do I say this? We actually owned the group rights from the players, and we paid a minimum. Um, and we never, in the early years, we never hit the minimum. In other words, we paid them, whether it was 20 or $25 million a year, and we wound up against the percentage of the royalties, but we never really sold enough to make that. But now I think the union believes that it can do better, and because of changes in social media and the like, maybe they can, and, and delivery, etc. I was concerned that I wanted to speak to the marketplace with a single voice, uh, because that was the best way to make this into a brand. I had inadvertently become a brand manager, uh, which is, I think, what all commissioners are, in addition to everything else they do. Uh, but now there may be so many more opportunities that additional activities are not going to be dilutive but may be reinforcing of the overall branding of the NBA. And that's why something like the Players' Tribune or the, you know, or, or other ways that the players reach out is actually good for business. We've never, over the last decade or so, we always wanted to have the most distributed content. Some of the leagues were sort of looking inward and blocking things, but that was never our way, and that was never Commissioner Silver's way. He was always a proponent of widely distributed content. So this may just be, we may be looking at more of the same. I've been invited over to play basketball on the, but I'm with, I want my partial knee replacement to settle in before I do that, uh, you know, and so, uh, you know, I have a good relationship with several of the people over there. You might have played better D on Clay Thompson than the Pacers did last night. I would have fouled them like crazy. I mean, you know, I hate to, I hate to sound like Charles, but gee, we got to whack that. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Charles would say something politically incorrect. I'm positive. Otherwise, he wouldn't be Charles. But, I mean, he would probably say, how did you let that guy take so many shots? Uh, but I guess the game was out of control anyway, so it was A couple okay. more questions from the students. How you doing, Mr. Stern? My name is Sam Parr, as I go to Marist College. One of the greatest debated questions in NBA between fans is LeBron and Jordan. Can you talk about the differences, how they impacted the NBA, and also, if you had a Game 7 NBA Finals, who are you taking? 
I'm not going to answer. <laughs> I'm just not going to answer. Other than it is a great question, and they're really different. LeBron is the most superb athlete that I've seen created. Michael was the most superb competitor that I've ever been around. Whether you were his teammate or the opposition, if you stood in the way of him winning, you would better get out of the way. And they are both... You know, Hall of Famers at the top of the game, but I'm not going beyond that. Okay. One more question. Hi, uh, my name is Tanya from Columbia University also. So we've been talking a lot about social media, technology. Obviously, ESPN has increased their numbers. Um, so how do you see this affecting, like, stadium attendance and the future, like, TV rights? What are your thoughts on that? I think, uh, you know, one of the things we always wanted to talk about internally was, at the NBA, was everything should drive focus on the game experience. There are some of us sort of quasi-old-timers that actually like to hear the sneakers squeaking on the court, uh, and a lot of the other things are distractions. But nevertheless, the entertainment experience in the arena It's, it's really, I used to say that when everyone stays in their homes in this future dystopian society, where they order their pizza in the house, they get their uh, EKG taken electronically, they order their automobile delivered to the front door, uh, the two places where they're still going to congregate are houses of worship and houses of sports worship. And we believe that, and that's what we're going to continue to do. I think that, you know, I get it. You know, if it's February and it's snowing, or maybe if it's January and it's snowing, um, you know, maybe it's easier to watch the game by the fire on your 78-inch Samsung HD, HDR surround-shaped, Dolby-assisted, uh, you, know, uh, you know, with the floor shaking if the fans are... Stand, you know, I, I, I got in a car and it was equipped with something that if you, if you start to cross the lane without your blinker on, the wheel starts to rumble and there's another one where the seatbelt starts to tighten. So I can imagine fans ultimately strapping themselves in at home and holding on to something so they can experience it. But still, there's nothing like being at the game. And, I, and I'm in, in all deference to the Wi-Fi that's going to be there. You know, I think fans demand it. They may want to see their own... Uh, highlights, etc., take their own photos, communicate with their friends. But then they're going to miss a lot of the action. So there's a balance that's going to have to be adjusted along the way. I think the game experience. I, it, the, the only thing that you can fear uh, as a threat to the game experience is pricing, where people reach a point and say no. Uh, and then the leagues will have to wrestle with the question of how they do the adjustments to make sure that the studio is full because playing in an empty arena is not conducive to the players playing well. I always said, you know, guys, it isn't just about the attendance. If, if your players are there and, and it's a 20,000-seat building and you've got 8,500 people in the building, 
that's not as inspiring as whether they're all fans shouting their, you know, themselves silly. And it is a communal experience. Where else can you come together with 20,000 strangers and join in the experience of rooting collectively the home team to victory? It's a really nice cultural aspect that we don't focus on that much. And the one thing else that we didn't focus on, now that the questions are over, is the we did touch briefly on players speaking out, but the ability of sports to influence social issues mm-hmm. is enormous. Underappreciated in some way because it happens so naturally. But literally the debate about HIV in this country was changed by Magic Johnson. Reactions to players being you know, assumed guilty when someone comes forward and then learning about due process where the prosecution didn't go forward or was dropped. That's a lesson in itself. There have been many lessons that sports has to teach, and it's important that our players, as they unleash this new found power that they have, speak on issues of some importance. Uh, I don't want to put the discussion too much off uh, track, but, you know, there are still 16 million kids who go to sleep hungry every night, and the NBA works with an outfit called Share Our Strength, another one called Second Harvest. Our players do too, and we're going to have to begin to see that have an impact because there are just too many imperfect things in this world that athletes have the opportunity, and I would say the obligation, together with their teams and leagues, to to speak out on that are relatively non-controversial but just don't show us in such a great light as we purport to lecture the world on how it should behave. We should worry about how to behave and our players and our teams have an extraordinary opportunity and I would say obligation to speak out on those things. You're on the Council for Foreign Relations. Will we ever see you run for office? I know people are like trying to get you to run for mayor. No, no, not going to happen. No. There's a, there's a signed pledge in the drawer back in my home. <laughs> you know, if it were going to happen, it would happen 20 years ago, but it's not happening. Let's give a big round of applause to David Stern. Thank you, David. Hey, everyone. Sports Business Radio host Brian Berger here. The wait is finally over. Sports Business Radio merchandise has finally arrived. We're working with our friends at the Parish Project to provide you with the opportunity to buy really quality Sports Business Radio merchandise. We've started with long sleeve t-shirts and short sleeve t-shirts. They come in five different colors each, a variety of sizes. I love my shirts. And soon... We're going to have hoodies to offer as well, hooded sweatshirts. I know a lot of you are wearing hooded sweatshirts while you're working from home these days, but whether you're working out, just lounging around the house, or doing whatever you're doing, you can rock Sports Business Radio merchandise. I think you're going to love it. Go to parishproject.com. That's P-A-R-I-S-H project.com, parishproject.com. And you can order your sports business radio merchandise today. We appreciate your support. And uh, send us your best picture. Tweet it to us at SB Radio. Or also you can get us on Instagram at Sports Business 
Radio. We look forward to seeing you rocking that Sports Business Radio merchandise. Well, that's it for this edition of Sports Business Radio. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks to our show staff, Brian Griggs and Josh Blank. And thanks to our partner, Molka Sports, for powering Sports Business Radio. Learn more about them online at molkasports.com. That's M-A-L-K-A sports.com. For Brian Griggs, I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio. This and every SBR podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and your favorite listening app. Follow Sports Business Radio on Facebook, Twitter at SB Radio, Instagram at Sports Business Radio, and online at sportsbusinessradio.com. Sports Business Radio is produced by Brian Griggs and Griggs Productions. GriggsProductions.com.